would you respond if an evangelist came to our church and began teaching something that challenged everything you'd been taught about the future? Something that would alter everything you had come to understand about the kingdom of God. Well, some would probably just say, we always knew it was wrong. <laughs> and, and no doubt I could be. Uh, only time will tell. But let's go beyond current differences of opinion about the end times to something that had been taught and accepted by God's people for hundreds of years, something that every congregation had come to believe. How would you respond to that? Or let's look at it from an entirely different perspective. How would you break the news to a congregation that their long-held ideas about the Savior, the Messiah, the promised King and His kingdom were mistaken? What would you say? Where would you begin? That's the challenge faced by the Apostle Paul every time he headed for the synagogue in a new town. And this morning we join Paul as he arrives in Thessalonica with news of the Messiah. News that many were longing to hear, but news that wasn't quite as expected. Continuing our study in the book of Acts, we're ready for chapter 17. Now, when they had traveled through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now Paul and his party had already crossed over from Asia Minor into Europe, had spent time in Philippi where they led Lydia and the jailer and their households to the Lord. After leaving Philippi, they traveled along the Ignatian Highway along the coast some hundred miles to Thessalonica, passing through Amphipolis and Apollonia to the capital of Macedonia, a city of 200,000 that had a large Jewish population and a synagogue, a place of worship for the Jews. Now, the lack of a synagogue was probably why they bypassed the other two cities. It was Paul's custom to head for a synagogue where he would find a receptive audience, at least initially. So he headed for the synagogue and spent three Sabbaths reasoning with them from the Scriptures. Now, the word translated reasoning is from the, the word from which we get our word, dialogue. He entered into dialogue with them, exchanging questions and answers about the Scriptures in the hopes that they would come to an understanding of who Jesus is. Now, again, the focus of their dialogue was the Scriptures, the Word of God. They weren't just kicking around ideas and sharing religious thoughts and opinions. Paul was getting them into the Word. 
they were looking at specific texts and discussing what they meant. His objective was to create opportunities from their Bible study to explain things they didn't understand. In particular, he wanted to prove to them to give evidence to the fact that Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now, the Jews were not expecting that kind of Messiah. They were expecting a king like David, a king that would rule from a throne in Jerusalem with with power and glory. And that's the picture they got from passages like Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Paul had a big job ahead of him. He would have to help them see that conclusions about the kingdom drawn from passages such as that were based on faulty presumptions drawn from a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of the kingdom. They were looking for an earthly kingdom, a political kingdom, like David's 40 years on earth. That was never God's intention for the Messianic kingdom. And it was the apostles' job to explain the true nature of the kingdom to them and to prove that their long-held misunderstanding was wrong. That's a big job. How do you convince someone that their long-held misunderstandings about the scriptures is wrong? Most likely, he began by simply reminding them that no earthly kingdom can last forever. And it said it would last forever. And then get them to see that God's plan was therefore to establish his reign in the hearts and lives of believers. And then enable those believers to live forever. Through his son, the Messiah. Now, in order for believers to live forever in the presence of a holy God, they would have to be holy as well. But since sinful men aren't holy, they would have to be forgiven. And a holy God could never simply overlook sin. So in order for sin to be forgiven, someone would have to pay the penalty for sin, and that would be the mission of the Messiah. That was a huge shift in understanding of his role. And in order to convince them of that fact, Paul would have to give them biblical evidence that the Messiah would suffer and die. 
my guess is he took them to Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. That doesn't sound like a royal king. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And his knowledge, and by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he himself bore the sin of many and interceded. Now that passage probably sounds familiar. It's read most every Christmas. And it's an amazing passage written 700 years before the fact. And it not only explains the purpose for the coming of Christ, it gives some specific details about his death and burial. Now I don't know how Paul's listeners may have viewed this passage, but Paul must have made it very clear to them that it was talking about the Messiah, a Messiah who would suffer and die. Death, however, would not bring the messianic reign to an end. After paying the penalty for sin, the Messiah would rise again. Paul may have taken them to a passage like Psalm 1610 to prove it. For thou wilt not abandon my soul in Sheol, or to the grave, neither wilt thou ally thy Holy One to undergo decay. What a strange passage. 
certainly it wasn't talking about David. He died and was buried and underwent decay. Talking about a Messiah who would The Messiah would die as a sacrifice for sin, but would not be abandoned in the grave. He would rise again and reign forever in glory and in the hearts and lives of those who would enter into his kingdom. That was the true nature of the messianic kingdom. But that was not what the Jews were expecting. It was, however, what the scriptures taught. And Paul made it clear that Jesus fulfilled the true biblical picture of the Messiah. Some believed it. Some accepted the truth because he reasoned with them from the scriptures. That's where he was. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Some of them, some of the Jews, were persuaded. They listened to Paul, even though what he was telling them differed markedly from what they had been taught. And they believed him, giving up beliefs that had been handed down for generations. they accepted the scriptural evidence. You know, they were already committed to the truthfulness and authority of God's word. Having seen the shortcomings of idle speculation and philosophical reasonings about spiritual matters, they had confidence in the revealed word of God. And now they were being given a better understanding of the scriptures themselves. What Paul said to them made sense. It rang true. They knew in their heart he was right. And they weren't too proud to admit that they'd been wrong. Now that is a stumbling block for many. It's huge when we learn that our understanding of religious matters and our understanding of Scripture has been wrong. It's huge to admit it. But they were willing even to stand and publicly admit what they believed. They stood with Paul and Silas and they faced those who who closed their eyes to the truth. It didn't matter if it was family or friends, or highly respected educators, they were willing to let everyone know what they had come to believe. Again, this was a big step, a huge step. It's a hard one for anyone to take. Well, the Jews took that step. And so did a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks. Now, these were the proselytes of the gate. They were someone who was maybe in the process of coming to accept Judaism. They were Gentiles who believed in the God of the Jews. They were God-fearing people. They were good people, people who were ready to learn. Quite frankly, they were probably 
the primary focus of Paul's efforts at the synagogues because they were the most receptive. You know, they were held at arm's length by the religious establishment, but were willing to listen to anyone who would teach them with authority about God. Luke also notes that a number of the leading women of Thessalonica believed. They, too, would have been largely ignored by the teachers of the law, but Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures, with the women themselves, and they accepted the truth he taught. Now, most commentators suggest that these leading women were actually wives of the leading men. In that society, there weren't too many leading women. But since they were married to leading men, they were in a position to influence the leadership of the entire community. And that may actually have been what led to the strong reaction we see next against Paul's teaching because it was rejected by many. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. When they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The unbelieving Jews were jealous of Paul's success. He had stolen their pool of prospects and was reaching into the household of the leading men. They couldn't prove him wrong from the scriptures. They couldn't argue with his reasoning so they sought to attack him personally. They didn't like what he said, so they plotted just to get rid of him. They hired some rabble-rousers from the marketplace and set the city in an uproar. In short, they created a riot and blamed it on Paul. Then they led the mob to the house where Paul was staying, intending to let mob rule, but he wasn't there. When they couldn't find him, they brought charges against his host, Jason. They charged him and some of the brethren before, the, or they dragged them before some of the brethren and, and the authorities and charged them with harboring insurrectionists. And then in absentia, they accused Paul and Silas of upsetting the world. What a great charge to have laid at our feet. Wouldn't we love to have someone officially charge us with setting the world Upside down? Wow, that is cool. Of course, they weren't crazy. Through deceit and half-truths, they turned the city against Paul, and they made it impossible for him to return. They apparently received a pledge from Jason and the others that Paul would no longer preach in Thessalonica. And it appears that Paul honored that pledge. Apparently, he didn't want to unnecessarily endanger the lives of other Christians. He wanted to return to Thessalonica 
but realized that the enemy had won that battle, actually writing that Satan hindered him from returning. That did not, however, keep the word from spreading. In fact, when writing to them in 1 Thessalonians, Paul said this, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. Isn't that amazing? He said, you guys have done it. You've gotten the word out. There's no need for us to even say anything because you're doing what you've been commissioned to do. You've come to understand the truth. And you're sharing it with everyone. Strong church had been formed in Thessalonica. And the faithful were getting the word out that the Messiah, the Savior, had come. And contrary to the fears engendered by talk about another king, the Messiah had not come to establish a political kingdom. He had come to reign in the hearts and lives of all who would accept him. Long-held beliefs about the Messiah had been proven from the scriptures to be wrong. The Messiah had come to suffer and rise from the dead, to pay the price for sin and to make it possible for anyone who would believe in him to be forgiven. That is the message that Paul proclaimed in Thessalonica. And that is the message we proclaim yet today. The promised Messiah, the Son of God, came to earth to die for you. Surely, when you understand that, 